Welcome to this podcast from Queen's University Belfast. My name is David Finmore and I'm here with my colleague Professor Katie Hayward to share with you some of our views on where we stand with Brexit. We're obviously at a very important stage in the process. The negotiations between the UK and the EU have been restarted and we are hopeful that those may lead to an agreement within the next couple of weeks. There are plenty of things we can talk about here. Um, we also want to talk a little bit about where the preparations are for the end of the transition period and some of the developments in recent weeks around the Northern Ireland Protocol. So to kick off, Katie, um, where do you think we are stand with the negotiations? Yeah, so we're at an interesting moment given that the government seems to be negotiating not just with the EU but also with its own party, um, trying to manage a lot of different expectations about what Brexit means about uh, reclaiming UK independence and sovereignty. And we can see a lot of pressure coming now onto the Prime Minister himself and having to make uh, decisions about what is possible to concede on and where the, those red lines will be very thickly drawn. We also see negotiations that the government is having or discussions that the government is having with uh, businesses um, and that growing pressure, which we'll discuss in a moment, um, that is upon business in trying to get ready for whatever might come on the 1st of January. OK, so plenty we could be talking about. Um, I suppose the key development this week is that following the decision of the UK Prime Minister to essentially suspend talks last week, they are now back on. We've got more intense negotiations taking place and there's also a renewed sense of, well, there may be a deal coming. Issues on the table still remain, however. Um, state aid, the level playing field, fisheries and the whole question of governance. Difficult to know what the outcome will be, but um, Katie, what do you think, uh, or do you think we're in for a deal? Uh, well, Michael Gove said this week he puts a deal at less than 50%, but he was doing so possibly to try and um, uh, go alongside that message of time is running out and time is running out. Um, uh, we've got, what have we got, 70 days now um, as we record this podcast um, until the end of the transition period. I still, I'd be slightly more optimistic than Gove, <laughs> um, which is possibly a little bit presumptuous, but I, I think that um, no deal is such a chaotic prospect. I mean, Brexit itself is going to be um, uh, challenging enough, but what no deal means, I don't think any of us should under, um, underestimate the consequences of that. And I think ultimately I'd err on the side of optimism and that we can get a deal. I mean, we've known what that deal might look like for some time. Um, we know what it requires compromises on, as, as you say, and we know that there is scope for um, agreement in those areas, on state aid, for example. Um, having an independent regulator in the UK, the possibility of um, cases being taken in UK courts to challenge breaches of um, subsidy rules. We know there's a potential agreement around fisheries too, um, with um, management of quotas there and possibly going something a little bit more towards what the UK has been hoping for with regular renegotiation of the of quotas, etc. So we sort of, we know what would, could be expected. It's just that question of whether the government can possibly frame such a compromise as it will be in a way that um, keeps all those various parts of um, essentially the Tory party happy. I think I'd agree. I'd be more half-glass full than half-glass empty here. Um, we know what needs to be agreed. The parameters are there, and despite the claims on both sides that the other side isn't necessarily moving, we have seen some movement in recent weeks, and I think there is broad recognition on what the issues are, what needs to be addressed. One thing that does concern me, however, is the timetable. Do you think it has to happen within two weeks? 
So uh, let's work backwards from 31st December and the end of the transition and think through the procedural requirements, particularly the fact that uh, the European Parliament has to give its approval to anything which is signed between the UK and the EU. We know when the European Parliament has its plenary sessions, it's got one in December and it has some in November. Um, but in order to pursue due process and also recognise the democratic input of the European Parliament into this, um, it probably does need to be given some time to scrutinise the terms of any UK-EU deal. And clearly the problem at the moment is that we don't have a text. Um, not We don't have a text to actually present to the um, MPs, MEPs rather, um, so that they can undertake that scrutiny. We don't know what the, the text will necessarily look like. We don't know the detail of what's going to be in it. Um, and clearly um, there needs to be time for the lawmakers, for the members of the European Parliament, to scrutinise um, the deal. Uh, I'd like to think also that uh, there'll be time for um, MPs in, in Westminster to be looking through the deal um, as, as well. I think on this, from an EP perspective, what's really important is that uh, they want to see the, up, the integrity of the single market upheld, um, just as the European Council has, has stated. They want to be assured that uh, the EU's decision-making autonomy is respected as well, and also, importantly, that there is that balance of rights and obligations um, in the agreement um, so that the EU isn't conceding too much to, to, to the UK, um, avoiding the situation where the EU believes that, uh, the, Europe, that uh, the UK is getting its cake and, and, and eating it. Um, this has all been, I think, really clearly set out by the European Council, but I think if you, if you delve into the statements of the European Parliament, they're, they're very, very similar um, as, as well. Okay. So I think the European Parliament will want to assure itself that uh, the, the principles... Uh, the balance of rights and obligations um, have been has been upheld, um, and I don't necessarily think it will be rushed into um, signing off on the agreement. That said, I think it's going to be put under an enormous amount of time pressure um, because, in all likelihood, we're not going to see the agreement emerge until uh, the end of the first week of November, probably at the very earliest. It then has to be translated, has to be tidied up, um, and uh, then got got over to the to the European Parliament. There's an interesting contrast there with Westminster and the fact that we won't be having a sort of the formal um, approval of the Houses of Parliament being sought um, according to the terms of the um, Withdrawal Agreement Act. Um, so there's much more, you know, with more parliamentary scrutiny of the final deal in the European Parliament than there will be in Westminster in many ways. Um, and that question of time, I mean, always... The as we saw with the withdrawal agreement and those negotiations, the sense of brinkmanship working in the UK's favour, I think there's definitely this sense that the ticking clock um, is seen as a, a strength t from the UK's point of view, um, which is somewhat peculiar, but uh, we, we definitely see that that's been used as um, some kind of negotiating tactic on the UK side, and you can definitely see that even what, with what happened last week, that that might be seen to have been a success. So we have had some movement from the EU on the, seeing the organising principles that we've seen published now, um, the move to intensify negotiations, the fact that they'll be working on their, you know, their legal text side by side and trying to compile them into an agreed text. I mean, those are the things that the UK has been pushing for, and. Uh, Although nobody, I don't think, really agree, um, believed that Johnson had walked away, despite saying that 
in a um, TV interview, um, they're definitely um, sort of the, the the sense that they wanted to do that or prepared to do that can be sold in the UK as 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 having worked. And so there's that always that balance between you know the domestic um, uh, the domestic um, intentions that the, the UK government has in these negotiations, and then the EU's much more sort of uh, disparate concerns when it comes to managing um, that process that it needs to needs to have in, in accordance with its institutions and of course its member states. Well, this is one of the things that the timetable points to, the fact that we are only really looking for European Parliament consent on the agreement. Um, the agreement's not so ambitious that it has to go to the member states um, as, as well. Um, but I suppose this then raises a number of questions. What is ultimately the deal going to look, look like? What is the substance going to be of that uh, agreement? So last week, in the last number of days, we have seen a few more pronouncements indicating some of the anticipated comment, content. Um, I think it was interesting, Michel Barnier, highlighting some of the things on which they, the UK and the EU have already reached agreement or on which there is broad consensus. Um, so I think that, that in turn brings a degree of confidence to the situation in which we find our, ourselves. Elements of the agreement are in place. And therefore, if you can move on the on the others, um, notably fish, then you can probably get a deal. Um, but I think we should not, shouldn't forget that this isn't going to be anywhere near as ambitious as what we were envisaging this time last year, when the UK and the EU signed off on what's a pretty bold political declaration about the type of relationship that they, they wanted in the future. Absolutely. And it's interesting that that, that, um, that campaign... Um, has been, you know, pushed with the idea that we're moving, you know, towards a no deal. So there's always that sort of slight confusion in the messaging, you know, um, as to whether people can simply sort of light candles and cross their fingers, hoping for a deal and everything will be all right, or whether, you know, or whether the sort of urgency behind the need to prepare is really getting across, regardless of whether we have a deal or not. And that, if you're looking at that website and that campaign it's particularly frustrating from the point of view from northern ireland because for obvious reasons in many ways the messaging is very much about gb and notably of course it's not just about trade but also about you know if you're working in the eu the need for a work permit if you're um hiring people from the eu you need to keep an eye on the new immigration system etc etc um so primarily they're focusing on gb but there's very little no information there about the specifics of Northern Ireland. So saying to GB businesses, prepare for new customs procedures, trading with the EU come the 1st of January, but nothing about, well, prepare for new customs procedures, trading with Northern Ireland come the 1st of January. And this is the difficulty that, um, it's a double whammy of difficulty, I think, in Northern Ireland that we're facing, that not only are Northern Ireland businesses having to prepare for the new um, regime, but they're also having also facing the consequences of GB businesses not being prepared for trading with Northern Ireland. And this this is where we come on to that question of what's happening with the protocol. So we had a joint committee meeting yeah, Monday, yeah. on Monday, um, and uh, they were. I mean, there's a lot of going over the same ground. Was, was there been much progress? Do you think? 
We'll see if we get a deal. Um, with or without a deal, there will be change on the 1st of January 2021. Um, and I think uh, the fact that everybody needs to prepare for, for that change, although they might not know exactly what it's going to look like, um, became uh, very much evident this week when the UK government uh, launched its latest campaign around preparedness for um, the end of the transition period, um, with the, this time with the slogan, Time is running out. Uh, started a somewhat worrying tone to that message and I can appreciate why businesses would be concerned by it um, and also why they might raise the question okay it's fair enough for the UK government to say time is running out and you need to be prepared but uh, prepared for what exactly um, and I think uh, we're probably going to see as a consequence of that uh, lack of, of clarity greater insistence coming through from from business on the on, on the need to secure a deal because if, if you want to minimize the disruption from the, from the first of, of, of january remove the un uncertainty then it's it's imperative that uh, that there is a deal in in place and one that delivers uh, uh, a tariff free quota free trade between the uk and and the eu um, i suppose even if we do get a deal uh, there's still an incredibly short amount of time to really ensure that uh, businesses are prepared for what's going to change on the 1st of January uh, next year. Yeah, I mean, we can see in terms of implementing the protocol, you can see that the government has moved somewhat um, in that direction. Mainly it's sort of hidden, so statutory instruments being laid down, to facilitate, um, for example, SPS checks happening in Northern Ireland, that kind of thing. Um, and it's somewhat unfortunate that, you know, there's still so much uncertainty about the things that have been produced. So the Trader Support Service, which there was a big fanfare about the £200 million investment, um, uh, and that was seen as a key um, move by the government to make sure that uh, we could have continued flow of goods um, into Northern Ireland from GB. Um, it was a very ambitious programme and now we see some doubts about what, what it will actually offer. Um, so um, um, our colleague Vivian Gravi has noted that, you know, even the ambition on the, in the TSS from August um, to the to the latest iteration of it published um, there last month seems to be diminishing. So it's not so much about doing the customs completing the customs paperwork for businesses, but showing them how, you know, how to get it done. Um, and also, I mean, the big, the big point is that we need about 10,000 traders to sign up to the scheme. And at the moment it's standing at a couple of hundred. And um, so there's obviously something, you know, the messaging isn't working and you can sort of understand why, because there's so much confusion about what these things will actually be. So at the same time as you can sort of say, trying to be optimistic, you can sort of look at, there are moves being made towards implementing the protocol, but it's far from adequate. Um, I think a big change, um, you know, it'll really be a huge breakthrough if we have a deal, obviously, um, in November, and then the Joint Committee to finalise those huge issues around monitoring and about at-risk goods. Um, but it's it's far too late to ensure that we'll have proper implementation of the protocol as it would be would have been expected to have happened come the 1st of January. Okay, uh, one of the key takeaways from Monday's meeting is that the mu mood music is uh, far more positive um, 
And indeed, it's probably fair to say that it's been reasonably positive over the last few months, but uh, we did have the UK internal market bill cutting across that uh, positivity in, in the discussions within the, the, the joint committee. Um, and indeed, we did have to have a, an, an extraordinary joint committee meeting last month to address the EU's concerns around the introduction of the UK internal market bill. But I think it, it's, it's fair to say that uh, the noise is coming out of the joint committee reflected in the in the statements both from the eu and the uk is that um uh, there is progress progress is being made on the decisions which need to be to be made uh, though those the, the recognition that uh, the decisions really do have to be uh, taken and provide some degree of certainty for um first first of january um, and I think it's also clear that uh, the EU is more appreciative of the uh, difficulties which the UK is going to face in ensuring implementation of, of the protocol. I think there's some attempt to address uh, the, those those concerns. Um, but that said, um, we're still missing though those key decisions around permissible levels of agricultural support, around the fishing question, around the at-risk goods, uh, what is not at risk and what will move into the EU coming from GB. Um, and then there's the whole question of, of monitoring arrangements and the extent to which the UK is going to be willing to see EU officials alongside UK officials ensuring that the customs code um, is implemented and that uh, the various EU regulations on the free movement of goods from GB into, or on the movement of goods from GB to NI are being implemented um, as, as well. Um, so there, there is plenty still left to be done before um, 1st of, of January. Um, the optimists may say that we've got yeah, another joint committee coming up in mid-November. We've got some specialised committee meetings in between. Um, the EU and the UK must be moving towards getting agreement um, on the decisions for the implementation of the protocol. That said, until there is agreement, um, um, we'll retain the uncertainty. Um, Moreover, um, there's linkages between what's happening in the implementation of the Northern Ireland Protocol and the wider question of what's happening in the UK-EU negotiations. Um, I think it's fair to say that those, those interlinkages mean to say that uh, um, the, the progress within the um, Joint Committee is probably going to be contingent, to a degree at least, on, on there being movement in the UK-EU negotiations. Um, so we, we cannot take it for granted that the, the decisions will be taken in, in, in time for the full implementation of the protocol at the end of, uh, of, of sorry, rather from the beginning of the 1st of uh, January next year. Um, and this uncertainty all, lev all just adds to the concerns which uh, uh, are on, that, that exist about what will uh, 1st of January, the end of transition, actually mean, um, whether that's for, for Northern Ireland, whether that be for the UK or, or the EU. Yeah, I mean, we can see in terms of implementing the protocol, you can see that the government has moved somewhat um, in that direction. Mainly it's sort of hidden, so statutory instruments being laid down to facilitate, um, for example, SPS checks happening in Northern Ireland, that kind of thing. Um, and it's somewhat unfortunate that you know, there's still so much uncertainty about the things that have been produced. So the Trader Support Service, which there was a big fanfare about the £200 million investment, um, uh, and that was seen as a key um, move by the government to make sure that uh, we could have continued flow of goods. 
um, into Northern Ireland from GB. Um, it was a very ambitious programme and now we see some doubts about what, what it will actually offer. Um, so um, um, our colleague Vivian Gravi has noted that you know, even the ambition on the, in the TSS from August um, to, the, to the latest iteration of it published um, there last month seems to be diminishing. So it's not so much about doing the customs, completing the customs paperwork for businesses, but showing them how, you know, how to get it done. Um, and also, I mean, the big, the big point is that we need about 10,000 traders to sign up to the scheme. And at the moment, it's standing at a couple of hundred. Um, so there's obviously something, you know, the messaging isn't working. And you can sort of understand why, because there's so much confusion about what these things will actually be. So at the same time as you can sort of say, trying to be optimistic, you can sort of look at, there are moves being made towards implementing the protocol, but it's far from adequate. Um, I think a big change, um, you know, it'll really be a huge breakthrough if we have a deal, obviously, um, in November, and then the Joint Committee to finalise those huge issues around monitoring and about at-risk goods. Um, but it's it's far too late to ensure that we'll have proper implementation of the protocol as it would be would have been expected to have happened come the 1st of January. I think if we do get a deal, and that deal is comprehensive in terms of its coverage of trade, um, i.e. that there's a, a genuine free trade agreement covering all goods, and there are commitments there in terms of some degree of no stepping back on regulatory alignment from what it currently um, is. I think there will be a huge sigh of relief within the business community, um, within civil service, within the government more more, more generally, because um, a deal obviously removes some of the complexities that would be thrown up um, by no deal for the implementation of the protocol. Um, we would not have to address to the same extent the question of um, goods at risk of onward movement into the EU, um, the extent of the, the checks and, con and controls on the movement of goods would probably not need to be as great, although they would still need to be, um, they'll still be quite substantial. Um, but then again, until we get the free trade agreement deal, um, then the uncertainty about what needs to be put in place continues. Um, there will be, a, I think, a lot of people, fingers crossed, that uh, that a, that a deal um, does come through. This is the key thing that that UK EU relationship um, really does affect dynamics within the UK um, and the UK internal market bill. Um, even aside from everything else, if it's trying to facilitate movement of goods across the UK, I mean, it really does not affect Northern Ireland anywhere near as much as a as a UK EU deal would in terms of um, helping the movement of goods from GB into uh, Another issue is the extent to which the UK Internal Market Bill has just soured relations. Um, I think following a, a shaky start to the implementation of the provisions of, of the protocol, um, where the EU was, I think, quite uh, legitimately concerned at the UK's commitment to, to implementing all its obligations. We did have a period through to early September when things were moving in the right direction that uh, the mood music was uh, was getting more and more positive there was a focus on on the technicalities of what needed to to, to be done um, but then we we get the internal market um, bill coming along and uh, the UK signaling that it intends to ignore certain of the obligations it has under the protocol um, and all this does is sort of feed the sort of levels of scepticism in the EU about the willingness of the UK to 
to implement the protocol in, in full. Um, I think one of the things that is often missed uh, is that the protocol sees the EU outsourcing implementation of its own regulations to the UK. Um, and it really does need to, to trust the UK to fulfil their obligations. Um, if the integrity of the single market, if the uh, integrity of this customs union is to be upheld, and I think we, we, we shouldn't um, overlook the fact that for, for the EU, the integrity of the single market is something which is, is pretty sacrosanct. Um, and so the UK's introduction of the internal market bill and uh, what it's saying there in terms of and possibly not implementing some of its, its, its obligations, understandably causes concerns within the EU, as well as within, within the, the British um, um, uh, uh, body politic. Um, I think it, it's also clear that uh, these concerns are appreciated in various quarters in the UK, and that's very much reflected in, in the Lord's discussion of the, the bill. Um, and uh, the obvious, obvious prospect of the, the government being defeated um, in, in due course um, are with some of the amendments um, that uh, the Lords are intending to, to um, introduce. Um, but anyway, um, Katie, you've been following this uh, far much more closely um, than I have, so perhaps you'd like to comment on, on that. Well, it's, the thing about that internal market bill is that... Um, it unnecessarily added friction in the UK-EU relationship, of course, because it was such a, a shock um, to see that extraordinary power to, to break the withdrawal agreement brought into domestic law. But also, of course, it raised unnecessary tensions with, within the UK um, and the concerns um, expressed very clearly from Scotland and Wales and the likelihood that we won't see the consent being given by Scotland and Wales to this bill um, really shows that the that this sort of sense of growing tension and friction um, uh, is is very acute at the moment. Interestingly, from Northern Ireland, we haven't seen a legislative consent motion being brought forward. We don't know. We never saw the Northern Ireland executive's response to the white paper. Um, so there's a sort of you can see how even tensions within Northern Ireland and politically over the protocol are being manifest in even the sort of um, not knowing how to respond to this UK internal market bill, which is possibly not surprising. It's it's a it's a it's a bill that claims to do things that it it can't do because of the protocol in many ways. So yeah, the the Lords Constitution Committee and the EU Committee um, issued reports that were very um, critical of the internal market bill um, and wanting um, very explicitly for the controversial clauses around the protocol to be removed and as you say that's what the EU is wanting to see too before we have a deal understandably so um, if the government holds this kind of um, ability to to renege um, on um, provisions of an agreement uh, written into domestic law and it is extraordinary and when it came to the Lords we saw um, the um, the a change being made with full support, as you say, of the of the Lords very clearly voted through to change the wording of the debate debate motion to regret, you know, the fact that this undermines the rule of law and damages the UK's reputation. So you see the tenor there of uh, of the the debate in the Lords and um, very full um, 
and very strong um, um, debate being held already in the Lords. So committee stages is um, next week and the week after. And uh, we can expect to see many amendments being made that are not just in relation to the protocol, trying to uphold Good Friday Belfast Agreement. Maybe particular amendments will be made in relation to the the relevance to human rights um, that has recently been written into the bill. But also we can expect to see also quite a lot on that relationship between the centre and Wales and Scotland. Um, so reinforcing the importance of common frameworks like a consensus consensual approach to managing um, trade within the UK after Brexit. Um, and this means, the timetable means we won't see part five, i.e. the stuff that deals with the Northern Ireland Protocol debated until the week after next. Okay. That's interesting. Um, it, it could indeed be coinciding with um, an announcement of a deal. Um, and some would argue that actually, well, if the deal is there, does that give the UK government um, the, the, the cover to accede to what the, the Lords is demanding. Um, we'll, we'll see. Yes, the timetable is interesting because actually the report stage will come mid-November. Um, that's the time by which we expect any deal to be with the European Parliament. So there will be a, a lot of activity um, in the coming weeks. Uh, the UK and the EU are cutting it fine to get a deal, to say the least. Um, but at least we're in the space where a deal is possible. Um, and indeed, if, if we look back, it's, it's arguably sort of quite remarkable that uh, we are at this point where we could be having a deal. Uh, if you go back to the beginning of this, this year and the discussion around whether um, the transition period was enough time in order for the UK and the EU to reach agreement, there, there were plenty of, of doubters um, arguing that, OK, you've simply not got enough time between the UK leaving on the 31st of December, 31st of January, um, 2020 and the end of um, the year in order to get a deal in place. Um, that said, we have to recognise that the likely content of the deal is nowhere near as ambitious as what was originally envisaged this time last year when the political declaration was adopted. Um, but progress has been made um, and there is the distinct possibility that a deal will be in place by the end of the year. That being said, one is tempted to say, OK, it's fair enough for the UK government to launch a campaign saying time is running out. One of the reasons why time is running out is the option to extend the transition period simply wasn't taken up. Um, the UK um, refused to, to countenance um, an extension. Um, so we could have actually had another year, two years to complete the negotiations, um, to complete the preparations for the uh, movement out of the transition period. Now, I'm not saying that people would necessarily wanted to have had negotiations drag on for another another two years, um, but the time you would have had um, could have been um, really valuable in terms of making the, the, the preparations for the end of the transition and also securing the best possible deal um, rather than us being faced with um, what is widely regarded as likely to be a fairly skinny deal, um, which in itself continue, does not address half the um, issues which uh, uh, at the end of Brexit or the, sorry, the end of the transition period is likely to, to, to create. Um, a more comprehensive deal would have uh, provided us with uh, more certainty um, than we're seeing at the moment. I only see, even if we do have a deal, I only see unfortunately like uncertainty continuing in many ways into next year because there will be 
if you have a deal, there'll still be many gaps and things that still to be um, agreed upon. Um, and even the, the fact that the UK has given itself, if you like, a kind of a bit of an implementation period, uh, according to the GBEU border operating model. Will six months be enough time for that, given all that has to happen in terms of IT systems and um, platforms for uploading information, etc., etc., and all the, of course, all the secondary legislation that still has to come through the Parliament to, to facilitate all of that. So, um, yeah, and plus also on the political level, we have we'll have elections in Scotland and English regional elections too, which is yet another front on which the the government is having some tussles at the moment, albeit on different matters. So yes, that is that just. I can see, even with a deal, we're just going to have a lot of continued uncertainty and negotiations going on at various different levels for the government. Yes, and if, if we look at the ex- experience of almost any country that is outside of the European Union, you're almost always in a permanent state of negotiation with the EU um, in managing and seeing your relationship uh, develop. I think here there are particular challenges for the UK and the EU because of the nature of the UK-EU relationship. But then you've also got the protocol in there as well. Um, it's something untried, untested. And as we know, each time you go and look at the protocol um, and look at some of the implications of it, there are as many questions often raised as there are um, answers. So there's going to be a, a huge amount of work um, ahead for the UK and the EU, particularly within the Joint Committee, um, to ensure the effective implementation of that protocol. I mean, I think possibly one reason why I think it would be so important to have a deal for Northern Ireland is that we continue to be at that nexus of the UK-EU relationship. And it would be very, very, um, be very concerning to be going into you know, 2021 with legal proceedings being taken against the, the UK by the EU and by having no deal. And yes, us still, yet we'd still be depending on agreement between the UK and EU at joint committee level um, for all sorts of matters that will, you know, just be occurring as a result of day-to-day politics and decision making so um uh, yes let's let's hope that the glass really is half full okay um try and bring things to a, a close here um even if we do get a deal um there will be um unaddressed issues um variety of loose ends um and then there are the unanticipated consequences of this whole process we always knew it was going to be disruptive, that uh, Brexit would bring um, disruption. Um, cannot expect anything um, less than if you're leaving an organisation like the European Union with all its regulatory alignment and high levels of integration. Um, if you've been a member for, for more than 40 years, um, leaving is going to be uh, is going to involve costs. It's going to involve um, a, a lot of up, upheaval. Um, but I'm not too sure that anybody has really identified all the forms of disruption that are likely to come. No doubt we'll see in the next couple of uh, weeks. Um, For the moment, um, we'll bring this discussion to an end. I hope that's been useful and you've enjoyed hearing some of our reflections and uh, we look forward to having a further conversation in due course. Thank you.